You're listening to Life in Deep Elms podcast. Uh, when I was uh, 25, my best friend Benji asked me if I would officiate his wedding. Now, I've officiated at this point in time well over 50 weddings. There's several people in here I think I've been a part of your wedding. How many of you have been a part of your wedding? Some people back there, over here, there. That's like Bill over there. All right. So one of my favorite moments, I'll show this picture. Uh, it's from Toby and Jen's wedding. Jen, you ready for this? So at the very end of their wedding, uh, when you're supposed to say, the minister's supposed to say, what God has joined together, let no man separate. I said, what God has joined together, let no man celebrate. And I said it with authority, you know. And they caught this picture right at that moment where I'm just like eye rolling. At the reception, all the toasts were like taking digs at me too. I know the preacher said we're not supposed to celebrate, but you know, I'm just like, all right, cool. Anyways, my, my buddy Benji, when he asked me to do his wedding, I was a newbie. I, uh, this, it was only my second wedding, so I'd only done one previous to that. But, uh, you know, I was a youth pastor with Soul Patch, and uh, I was pretty, pretty, I, I guess just like, novice, like was unexperienced, and I didn't know what to do, but that wasn't what gave me pause when he asked me to do his wedding. Uh, what, he gave, what gave me pause was the fact that at that point in time, my best friend Benji was not a professing Christian, and he had been living with his fiance Whitney, for well over a year, and I, I loved my friend. I still love him, but back then, I was really wrestling with what is the right thing to do? Uh, here I was as youth pastor at a traditional mega church, and I knew exactly what the other pastors on staff would have said had he asked them to do, the, do his wedding. They'd be like, no dice. That ain't happening. Um, I was worried what they were, would think if I said yes. I was worried um, also what this message might send to the youth and to their parents who were all relying on me to teach all their teenagers to not have premarital sex because that's wrong and it gives you genital warts. <laughs> but I was, I was also worried that if I said no, that my best friend Benji would get this message that I didn't want him to get. You know, in high school, uh, we were both fervent Christians. Uh, he taught me how to play guitar. He taught me how to play worship songs. We pray together. But um, he stopped being a Christian for some actually pretty compelling reasons that really impacted him. And I was afraid I would confirm all of those reasons if I wasn't willing to perform his wedding. So I felt stuck. I had these convictions. And it felt like I was being forced to choose between truth and love. That's what it felt like to me. So this morning, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we don't put scripture verses up on the screen. I encourage you guys to look at the scriptures yourself. Raise your hand. Someone will come by and let you borrow one of our Bibles. Truth and love. That's what this series is about. The supposed struggle between truth and love. Uh, many years ago, uh, I have a friend who um, we were in this Life, Life in Deep Bellum leadership meeting, and he said, and he just kind of spoke up, he, he said, you know, I feel like our faith community seems to do really well with the love part of our faith, but according to him, we could use a little work on the truth part. 
That's a common perspective, especially amongst certain faith traditions. The drawback of this perspective is that these two ideas aren't actually opposed to each other. In fact, biblically speaking, there's no such thing as truth without love. Rachel spoke about this last week. She talked about uh, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about love and with, without love, everything, everything is just a clanging symbol. No melody, just a harsh noise and hullabaloo, right? Like, which is what I think is a good description of kind of like our political climate, just harsh noises and hullabaloo. So the big idea is this, truth is inside love. Yeah, so it's inside love. Love is the bigger picture. Now, we need truth. We need guidance. We need correction. That's part of growing. That's part of maturing. Without truth, we are in danger of getting stuck in patterns of unnecessary pain and suffering. I want to say that up front. Without truth, we are in danger of getting stuck in unnecessary patterns of pain and suffering. But without truth... I'm sorry, without love, I think we all know what that feels like. We, it feels like criticism. It feels like judgmentalism, condemnation. And no matter how objectively true something may seem to be, without love, it's not the deepest truth. It's not the best truth. The question is, without love, can it really be called truth at all? And spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, just beyond the mathematics and objectivity Without love, can it be called truth at all? I hope to demonstrate what I'm getting at. So everyone turn to John chapter 8 with me. The video was a little preview of what we're going to be reading this morning. John chapter 8. may look a little weird in your Bibles, some little footnotes here and there, but we'll get to that. Uh, So it's probably going to start right before chapter 8, verse 53 of chapter 7. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's a well-known story in John's gospel. And for many, this story shows the tension between forgiveness, the need for it, and the need to pursue holiness, or theologically speaking, justification and sanctification. On the one hand, Jesus, is, Jesus forgives the woman caught in adultery, no condemnation. We are justified by faith in Christ. 
But on the other hand, his parting words, go and sin no more, like the sanctification component. And many see this as a clear example of the dichotomy between truth and love, and perhaps it is. But what I hope to show you this morning is that sometimes Jesus' teachings aren't as clean and neat as we would like them to be. There always seems to be an air of mystery to them. Like I have to lean in closer, look a little bit closer. This is one of the reasons why I love Scripture. No matter how much I learn academically about the Bible or how much I grow spiritually, the Bible always seems to be one step ahead of me. Does anyone feel me there? Like it always seems to be ahead of me, drawing me closer to the heart of Jesus, challenging me to trust God more with my heart and my mind. So uh, I want to dig into this passage, and if you're ready to take a deep dive into these 11 verses, shout out, let's do this thing. thing. That's all right. All right, let's try it a different way. Um, In the highest octave, you can say, say, let's do this thing. thing. No, no, no. All right, let's go down a couple. At the lowest rumbling voice you can do, say, let's do this thing. Yeah, that feels right. Doesn't that feel right? All right. So um, here are the issues. One, the manuscript issues. You probably saw this in your Bibles. There's usually little footnotes. Uh, Right off the bat, we have a problem. The problem is that almost every biblical scholar, and I'm not lying here, across the board, almost every biblical scholar agrees that this story is not original to John's gospel. Uh, The Eastern Church Fathers, if you follow them, they don't even mention it for like a thousand years, as if it doesn't even exist. They don't even know it exists. It crops up in the fourth century in the Western church, um, and po- is put into a popular translation called the Latin Vulgate, and therefore enters the mainstream of the biblical narrative from then on in the Western church. And I remember in seminary, Rachel and I were in this class that we loved with a professor that we deeply respected and uh, he was great, and we were talking in the class that someone had asked about the addition at the end of Mark's gospel. I don't know if you knew this, but Mark has a longer ending that is not probably not original to the manuscripts, and you'll see most of your Bibles will show like a little ending, like Mark's gospel ends very abruptly, and then there was like this probably later ending scribes added to it later. And uh, he was saying that, yeah, uh, he agrees that it's probably not original to Mark's gospel, but he still preaches from that passage, which prompted me to go, oh, okay, well, Professor, what do you do with uh, John 8, the woman caught in adultery? He just responded so quickly, oh, I never preached from that passage. Oh. Well, it looks like I may break a few rules this morning because I feel like it's okay. Uh, I can't blame my professor. Uh, studying for this, almost every commentary that I've read, they all do something different with this. Like, usually the commentators put this story in an excursus or an appendix. A lot of commentators just skip it. They just skip straight to verse 12 and act like it never existed. I feel you're getting a little uncomfortable with me, but just come in closer. This kind of narrative of how the Bible came to be sometimes is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable when you start to understand the studies of manuscripts and how different they are and how different history writing was in the ancient world versus how we understand it and how most of you were trained that the Bible is only authoritative because it's inerrant. If you hold to that 
and then you study the manuscripts, it's going to be very hard for you to hold on to the faith, your faith. I've seen many, many people lose their faith in education because their idea of inerrancy made the Bible not authoritative anymore. Just want to gently invite you guys in. There's still authority and power in the scriptures. But inerrancy is a modern word that often destroys our ability to see how the Bible honestly and authentically came to become what it is. Okay? So come into me. I still believe that the scriptures have authority, uh, and I still rely on them heavily. So uh, how did this passage of the woman caught in adultery make its way into the Bible? Why include it? No, I'm asking you. Do you guys, does anyone know? No, I'm kidding. I kid. So for me, I feel comfortable preaching from this passage because the story, uh, most think that it's not original to John's gospel, but also most scholars feel like it's an authentic story. Like there's historical authenticity in this story. If you look at verse 12, you'll see that Jesus begins speaking to the crowds and the religious leaders. And you're like, wait, what? I thought verse 11, everyone left. And it's just Jesus and the woman. How come they all appeared again? Well, that's probably because a scribe somewhere in history put it into that part of John's gospel, this story. And if you look through the various manuscripts, you'll probably see it in your Bibles. It'll say something like, sometimes it was put in this part of John. Sometimes it was put in this part of John. Sometimes it was put in Luke's gospel. It's all over the place, all right? But despite its suspicious origins, scholars are fairly confident that the story is authentic. It seems to have stemmed from the same pool of oral traditions that all contributed to the composition of our Gospels. You guys following me? Like really, really smart people, they look at the grammar, they look at the syntax, they look at uh, just the various ways to look how oral tradition develops. Stems from the same pool of authentic stories that all contributed to the composition of our Gospels. So, the question is then, why leave it out? Why was it not in the early manuscripts? Why did it take so long for the seemingly authentic story to weave itself back into the scriptures? The most common theory is that the story went against the ethics of the early church. What I mean by that, particularly adultery and sexual immorality. That's why it was left out. Paul spoke of sexual sin often, and mostly because he was responding to a lot of just rampant immorality in the Roman Empire. And the early church fathers took Paul's sentiment to the next level. Listen, these guys, they're all men, and they all had issues with sex, so they wrote about sex a lot, all right? <laughs> Let's just be honest here. Uh, adultery was listed as a sin alongside homicide and apostasy in a lot of early church fathers. Uh, church fathers like Tertullian, Origen, and Cyprian, all church fathers whom I've read and enjoy a lot of their writings, but they all said sexual sins were particularly heinous and without forgiveness. Did you guys just hear what I said? Without forgiveness. Here's a story where Jesus forgives an adulteress. No condemnation. That didn't align well with the early teachings of the early church. So it wasn't until centuries later when Christianity was legal and bishops were being more uh, encouraged to show mercy that the story made its way back into the gospel manuscript. So apologies to my professor who doesn't preach from this passage. That's good enough for me. So I'm going to stay here. 
second issue is title issues. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it bears mentioning. In most Bibles, you've got the subheadings, right, and, and bold. You've seen those. Those aren't original to the text. Those are translators putting those in, helping a modern reader, because we're just used to that. We're used to having subheadings that help us. Now, if you look in most recent trans, uh, translations, you won't see a subheading for this story. And that's the translators giving kind of a nod to the fact that they don't agree that it's original. But in the past, the subheadings were usually focused on the woman. In Latin, it was pericope de adultera, which is the passage about the adulteress. In the CEV, contemporary English version, it says, the woman caught in sin. Then NASB, New American Standard Bible, called it the adulterous woman. You see the pattern here, right? It's focusing on the woman, the reader immediately is, assumes what the main point of the story is. The woman's sin. But that's not the main point of the story, friends. Some stories get wrongly labeled. For example, the prodigal son. How many know the parable of the prodigal son? Right? Problem is, the prodigal son is not the main character. He's only half the story. What about the other brother who's a legalistic brother? The main character is the father who's gracious and generous. Many scholars will say it's wrongly named throughout history and should be called the parable of the waiting father. That's really what it's about. And just like that, the woman's sin is not the main point of this story. This is not a story teaching us about adultery. Often the Pharisees would, would try to trap Jesus, right? You, you see that happen throughout the Gospels all the time. Um, remember that time when they tried to trap him and say, who do you pay taxes? Our taxes, should you pay those taxes? They're, to the Roman Empire. They're trying to trap him. And he gives this brilliant answer. He says, take out a coin. Whose face is on the coin? And that famous answer, render unto Caesar what is? Render unto God what is? It's brilliant. But you don't call that story the story of the coin. That's not, I mean, it's a part of the story, but it's not the point of the story, right? Uh, so what we see in John 8 is not the woman caught in adultery. That's not the point of the story. These guys are trying to trap Jesus. And particularly, they're trying to get Jesus' view on stoning, capital punishment, which was a huge debate, just like the debate around taxes. It was a huge debate around whether or not we should follow the, literally the law of Moses and stone these people. Already in the first and second century, this is just a side note, uh, there were rabbis who were questioning whether capital punishment honored God. You can read about that in the Mishnah. So this was a debate, and they were trying to figure out, whose side are you on, Jesus? Are you for stoning this woman, or are you against? Whose side are you on? This, they could care less about this woman. She was just a pawn for their little scheme. So instead of calling the woman caught in adultery, perhaps this should be titled something like, Jesus and the Murderous Men. <laughs> that tells us a lot more about what's going on in this story, all right? All right, last issue, speculation issues. This is perhaps the biggest part of the story because there's so many details that aren't there. Just an obvious absence of details. Like, what is Jesus writing in the sand? Do you guys, does anyone else like wonder what, what on earth why tell me he's writing in the dirt and not tell me what he's writing? <laughs> Why tell me that? 
I mean, are you curious about what he wrote? I am. God's like, sorry, deal with it. And scholars speculate it could be anything from Jesus writing the name of the man who slept with her. Have you heard of that? Uh, sometimes uh, they just say he's doodling, just kind of creating tension in the air and forcing the people to kind of notice the woman who's stressed out and maybe build compassion in them. The, the, the point is, we don't know. It's all speculation. All of it is speculation. And what about her adultery, guys? What exactly was she caught doing? What was her situation? And what does Jesus mean when he says, go and sin no more? Again, we don't know for sure, but just to give you a sense of how wide the options are, allow me to paint a picture of the culture this woman was living in. In those days, women were usually married around the age of puberty, which would have been 13-ish. But often... Women were betrothed well before then. An older man would be betrothed to, could be a nine or ten year old girl. And it was never the choice of the girl. Ever. She had no say into who she married. And it was always without consent. She may consent, but it was irrelevant. Now, if a betrothed girl nine or 10, before she gets married around 13, ends up having sex in any way, shape, or form. She's an adulterer, and she is stoned. If she happens to be raped in a public area and does not cry out loud enough for people to hear her, rabbis wrote about this, she's considered a willing participant, and she is stoned. Therefore, and I want you to listen to me now, it is within Jewish law of the first century that it is possible that a nine-year-old girl was thrown in front of Jesus by a group of men who wanted to stone her because she was raped. That's not likely, all right? That's not likely what's happened. I'm just telling you that it's plausible. You guys, I just want you to feel, sometimes we bring our modern understanding of society when we read the scriptures, and we picture this woman according to that. Let's get into the first century and see what all the possibilities could be for us. Husbands could legally beat their wives in those days. Women had very, very limited options when it comes to divorce, almost impossible. A man could divorce a woman because you burned dinner. And if the woman was divorced, she would be homeless and without any opportunity for income. They didn't have welfare. They didn't have child support. That's why when, when we read about in the New Testament how important it is to care for widows and orphans, they had no safety net in their society, no protection. In the ancient world and many parts of the world still today, marriage protects women. Marriage protected this woman. So uh, men, on the other hand, I know we think about it as the Old Testament, but in Jesus' day, polygamy was also still legal and all right. So even in the first century, men might have various families in various towns. And many times, quote-unquote, the adulteress was a woman who was being neglected and left in a town without her husband because he was off with his other families. So therefore, the idea that this was a seductive harlot or a restless housewife is not the most logical assumption and if so, even if it was, where's the other guy? 
Is anyone else like, wait a second, it takes two to have adultery, people. It takes two. Clearly, the man was either involved in this plot or the religious leaders caught them and told the guy he can go away. Again, this girl was just a pawn. But again, we don't know the details, zero details on the situation, which I hope gives us a little bit of pause when we try to interpret Jesus' often quoted line, go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin is what he says. Now, Jesus said something similar in John 5. He told a blind man after he healed him to go and leave your life of sin. Otherwise, something worse will happen to you. What? So is Jesus saying that the man who was blind, that he healed, was blind because he was a sinner, that he was sinning? That doesn't make much sense because just in the next chapter, John chapter 9, there's a blind man. The disciples ask him, Jesus, like, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. And if Jesus is so concerned about everyone knowing where he stands on sin, why doesn't he tell the accusers to go and sin no more? They want to murder this girl, and he says, nothing? Get a backbone, Jesus. Now, clearly, Jesus cares about sin. I just want to say that. Uh, sin is destructive. It separates us from God and separates us from our true selves. God loves us. He wants us to live connected with him. He wants us to live connected with ourselves, integrated, integrity. So perhaps Jesus wasn't even referencing a specific sin. Maybe this was a very common general party line for him. Like, go, avoid sin, live life connected to the Father and yourself. That's, that's the goal for all of us. Again, we don't know the details. So we should exercise caution when speculating. For me, I just trust that the story gives me the details that I need. All right, so I come to these conclusions. One, Jesus confronts a group of murderous men when they try to trap him. And he refuses to cooperate with this stoning a sinner business. And two, Jesus doesn't treat the woman like a pawn. He treats her very differently. So back to Benji's wedding. Uh, I was really struggling between what I thought was a choice between truth and love. I was sincerely wrestling with this. I mean, uh, I believe, and I, you know, I believed back then and still believe today that uh, how we practice our sexuality matters. In particular, I've seen a lot of damage when people take ultimate inti intimacy outside of ultimate commitment. Uh, that's a, kind of a scary place to live. But I didn't expect my friend to share my views. So uh, I prayed about it. And one, uh, I came to this idea that the, really, the only real reason that I was hesitant to do his wedding was I was scared what other people would think about me. <laughs> When I boiled down to it, like I was scared what other people were going to think about me. As a recovering people pleaser, it's, it's been kind of a common thread in my life. And thankfully, that realization disgusted me about myself and my friend deserved better from me. And number two, I asked myself, what would Jesus do, right? If, if, if Benji asked him to do his wedding, according to my experience of Jesus, I was like, he would absolutely do it. He would absolutely do it. So um, I talked to Benji, and I said, hey, man, um, 
is it okay if I like quote the Bible and talk about God in your wedding? And he smiled at me and said, yeah, absolutely. We want you to be you, Joel. I was like, oh, well, cool. So I did it. I did the wedding. You can see a picture up there. This is in, in um, typical Benji fashion. We had the wedding in an old skating rink. Uh, Whitney didn't have a, a father in her life at the time, so her mother walked her down the left aisle. Benji asked his father to walk him down the right aisle, and they both walked down, and they stood right in front of me. Both of them had tears just streaming down their face, and it was the most beautiful wedding. It was so powerful, and um, after the ceremony, I asked everyone to pick up their chairs because we were standing on the reception floor, which was roller skating. And we all roller skated afterwards to Paul Abdul and other 80s music. It was awesome. So the story of Jesus and the murderous men, formerly known as the woman caught in adultery, is a powerful story. But as we saw, it's fraught with ambiguity. Interpretation is tricky. Other than Jesus' clear rejection of stoning sinners, drawing conclusive lessons isn't straightforward. So here's what I want to do. Uh, I'd like to offer two pieces of pastoral counsel, both inspired by the story. You guys ready for that? Okay, cool. So number one, learn the art of holding non-judgmental convictions. Learn the art of holding non-judgmental convictions. You know, the most powerful part of the story, and I think you all feel it, is how Jesus treated the woman. It has inspired people for centuries because it draws us into the heart of Christ. He protects this woman by confronting the self-righteous mob. And then he pronounces forgiveness, no condemnation. It's powerful to us. Think about how powerful it would have been in that context. But clearly, whatever sin he had in mind, he cared about the way that she lived her life. He cared. He told her to go and sin no more. And Jesus can't be classified as a to-each-his-own sort of person. It can hardly be argued that he's okay with adultery. So there's this tension. So whatever his reference to sin means, I want to argue that it is clearly swimming in a larger pool of grace. It is clearly swimming in a larger pool of grace. Uh, there's nothing wrong with convictions, though. I just want, I, you know, early in our lives, this is how convictions work. Early in our lives we are handed convictions, right? We're given convictions by our family, by our friends, by our faith communities. And some of them are quite good convictions, uh, like trusting God or acting respectfully towards other people. Some of them are really bad convictions, not so good, like self-promotion or racism. These sorts of things get handed down as convictions to people, whether we wanted them or not. As we grow older, hopefully we get to a point where we detach from all of those convictions and then reattach to the ones we still find compelling and let the other ones go. Do you guys follow me? Like, there's something about, like, detaching even from the good ones and reattaching because it's my decision versus my parents' decision. I think that's a really healthy kind of thing. And so we detach, reattach to the ones that we find compelling and let the other ones go. Uh, the problem is when we begin to expect that everyone should hold all of our convictions, we should all have the same convictions. That's what the problem is. We begin to all have the same convictions, uh, us versus them, and this slowly and almost in inevitably morphs into judgmentalism. And there's two problems as I see it. 
when our convictions morph into judgmentalism, we have to remember, one, we see through a glass darkly. Say that with me. We see through a glass darkly. Rachel spoke about this last week. Where is she? She's, oh, there she is. She's on the front row. She spoke about this last week. Sorry, I didn't mean to like call you guys out. <laughs> we see through a glass darkly. Um, we don't see the whole truth, as Paul says in Corinthians. And often, let's be honest, our convictions, many of them shift over time. Not all of them do, right? Not all of our convictions shift over time, but many of them will evolve. And it's hard to predict which ones will. So whatever convictions we hold, we hold them with humility. That will help buffer judgment, right? We hold our convictions with humility because we see through a glass darkly. The second problem, if we hold our convictions judgmentally, others are going to feel that. They're going to notice that whether you say it or not. And that hardly helps in our efforts to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to do unto others as we would have others do unto ourselves. Listen, in this room, just look around right now. Look around in this room. Many of you likely hold diverse convictions on a variety of issues. And some of them are issues that matter to you a lot. Gun control, LBGTQ policy, Abortion, immigration, is golf really a sport? <laughs> the answer is yes. It's my conviction. I don't judge you if you disagree. <laughs> Friends, there's nothing wrong with holding a conviction. Nothing wrong with it. But I hope we can all strive to submit our convictions to God. And I do hope that we can trust the scriptures to sculpt and shape our convictions. But we have to be careful with how we communicate them. Specifically within the context of community, where Christian unity is what Jesus talks about as the thing that defines that we belong to him. They will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. All right, so here's my suggestions to everyone. Speak from the eye in terms of conversation. Speak from the eye. Avoid blanket statements. Qualify your statements with stuff like, for me, or in my opinion, all right? This is, this is important. I know it sounds silly, like, oh, am I in my therapist's office right now? Yes, okay? Just, <laughs> it's important. It's important, okay? It honors the other person. That's why it's important. It honors the other person. It gives them space to have and to develop their own convictions while considering yours. That's what's called dialogue, conversation. There's space where there's freedom of other, everyone to have their own dignity. And if we still disagree after that, it's okay. It's okay. That doesn't mean that you have to change your convictions at all. Love is strong enough to hold us together. When Paul talks about the body of Christ, the arm and the leg and the eye, it's I say to this and you, that's what he's talking about. Love has the ability to hold us all together. That's why we call ourselves a creedal community. We focus on the top things, right? And we allow the other things underneath to be matters of conscience that we can build Christian unity. And guess what? 
You and I may disagree, but over time, via a relationship, I may come to see what you see that I don't see. And you may come to see what I see that you don't see. That's the beauty of, of community. We enrich each other. Okay, second thing. Let love be the doorway to truth. That's my second pastoral counsel. As much as Christians like to quote the line, go and sin no more, one might think that, the main point, that this is the main point of the story, but it's, it's not. I'm sorry, guys. I can't just sweep away this amazingly told, dramatic story with one closing line. All right, if anything, the larger part of Jesus' interaction with a woman overwhelms his closing line, truth swimming in love. I see tenderness here. I see forgiveness. I see grace. And notice, Jesus starts with that. He doesn't, like, start with his conviction that she should not sin. That's not where he starts. No, he starts with compassion. Love is the doorway to truth. And like Paul said, anything without love is harsh noise and hullabaloo. Jesus gets this. You know, he knows that we humans find it very, very difficult to swallow the hard truths without a safe and loving space to receive them. A safe and loving space to receive the hard truths. And to illustrate, allow me to tell you a parable. This parable is written by uh, Peter Rawlings in his book, Insurrection. He tells a story. There once was a man named Caleb who was obsessed with gathering up possessions and gaining status. He was so driven by the desire to succeed that from an early age, he managed to become one of the most prominent and influential figures in the city. Yet, he was not happy with his lot. He worked long hours, he rarely saw his children, and often became irritable at the slightest problem. But more than this, he knew that his lifestyle met with disapproval from his father. His father had himself been a wealthy and influential man in his youth, but he had found such a life shallow and unsatisfactory, and as a result, he had turned away from it in an endeavor to embrace a life of simplicity, fellowship, meditation. And Caleb's father tried really hard to teach his son about the problems that come with seeking material and political influence. And he warned Caleb in the strongest possible way to embrace a life that delves deeply into the beauty of creation, the warmth of friendship, and the inspiration derived from deep and sustained reflection. Caleb's father was an inspiring man. Everyone loved him. And Caleb could see that his father, while living in a modest way, was at peace with himself and the world in a, in a way that him and his colleagues were not. And because of this, Caleb often looked with longing at his father's life and frequently detested the path that he had personally chosen. Yet despite all of that, he was still driven, driven to pursue wealth and power. And it was true that his father was happy. It was true that his father was contented. But he was also concerned about his son. And on occasion, when they spent time together, he would criticize Caleb for the life he had chosen. But one day, while Caleb's father was reflecting upon his son's life, 
a voice from heaven interrupted him saying, Caleb is also my son, and I love him just the way he is. Caleb's father began to weep because he realized that all these years he had been hurting his son through his disapproval and criticism. So he immediately visited his son's house and offered him a heartfelt apology. And he said, please never feel that you have to change what you do or who you are. I love you without limit, without condition, just the way you are. And from that day forward, the father began to take an interest in his son's life again, asking questions about what he was doing and how his work was progressing. But increasingly, Caleb found that he was no longer interested in the working the long hours. Soon he started to skip work in order to spend more time with his family and began to take less interest in what other people thought about him. Eventually, Caleb gave up his work entirely and followed his father's footsteps, realizing that it was only after his father had accepted him unconditionally for who he was that he was able to change and become who he always wanted to be. And Peter Rawlings writes this parable, and after it, he says this, this is nothing less than a description of grace. In grace, we are able to accept that we are accepted and in this very act of knowing we do not have to change, we discover the ability to change. It is in experiencing the license of grace rather than the legalism of prohibition that real transformation becomes possible. I, I, I call this the different... Oh, thank you. I didn't write it, but thanks, yeah. Uh, I call this the difference between wearing fruit and bearing fruit. The tradition I grew up in, we like to wear fruit. I, as a youth pastor, I would like, I'd have a little necklace on the, I'd hang some bananas there and say, look how fruitful I am because I put on this behavior. But that wasn't coming from the inside of me. I just was putting on a different mask for people to see because I didn't do X, Y, and Z. Whatever faith community you're in, you didn't do this thing. There's a difference between wearing fruit and bearing fruit. That's transformation. That's what Jesus is asking us to become. But we can't do it on our own, no matter how hard we try. I love what C.S. Lewis says. I have to bring him in. No one knows how bad they are until they try really hard to be good. Come on. That's good stuff. All right, stand with me. So after Benji's wedding, um, during the, the roller skating time, which was a super good time, a mutual friend came up to me. Uh, he was a friend of Benji's, a friend of mine. Um, and we, uh, we had all spent time in high school, like at prayer meetings, singing worship together. And, but unlike Benji, this person didn't stop being a Christian. In fact, he went the opposite direction and became just like hardcore Christian, like legalistic, vocal pressure salesman Christian, okay? That's what he became. And so I was honestly surprised and pleased that he showed up at the wedding for Benji. Uh, sadly, I was not surprised nor pleased with what he wanted to talk with me about. Uh, he wanted to know how I could justify performing the wedding of two people who were living in sin. Now, you might think, oh, he was just curious about how you got there, Joel. It's like, no, I was there. I saw his, 
his forced smile, I heard the tone of his voice, he disapproved. Which I was like, why are you here? I don't understand what's happening. So I told him my two answers that I just shared with you guys. That one, that um, I realized the only reason that I didn't want to do it on a deep level was I was scared what other people would think about me. And two, after prayer and consideration, I believe that Jesus would have done it. So those are my answers. And judging by how his forced smile began to twitch a little bit, I don't think he liked my answers, and we cordially parted ways. And over the years, I've been very tempted to judge him. I can see his disapproving face in my mind still. After all, it was very scary for me to step out and to perform Benji's wedding in front of other people and live out my convictions. And it was very hurtful to feel the judgment of someone that I thought was my Christian brother because I was performing this wedding. But nowadays, I'm trying not to judge. I really am. I'm really trying. And he had his convictions, and maybe they will change one day. I don't know. And to be honest, maybe mine will. Who knows? The only conviction I refuse to let go of is this. Love is bigger than truth. I won't let go of that. Love is bigger than truth. And if it isn't, I'd rather just be wrong. I'd rather just be wrong. In my opinion, all transformative truth can only be found in an ocean of love and grace. That's the gospel. So now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, power, majesty, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, now and forevermore throughout all the ages. And we all say, blessings, guys. Love you.